You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with me, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. And yes, you heard me correct. This is, in fact, my first solo episode with any of my usual co-hosts. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out our back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Now, firstly, let me just say another really big thank you to those of you who took time out to leave a rating and review this week in iTunes. I noticed people like Stefan and Snow2828 and Mestoff leaving some great reviews in the US iTunes store as well as Zach in the Canadian store, just to name a few. But my thanks really go out to all of you who took time out this week. This is something we really do appreciate. It's something that we uh, read and pay attention to. And these reviews not only help more investors discover the podcast, they actually also help you as a current listener. As the more we can grow the podcast, the easier it becomes for us to attract the best minds in finance to join our conversation. So hopefully a win-win situation. So for those of you who have not yet left a rating and review, we would love if you would take out five minutes of your time and you can do it now by hitting pause and then just hit the play button when you are done to continue today's episodes. To make it really easy for you, you can also just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review and then you have all the instructions. I hope this is not too much to ask for. Now, with that out of the way, let me say that although my usual co-hosts are not here today, you're not going to miss out on hearing from a great mind when it comes to trend following. In fact, he is one of the smartest people I know in this industry. And uh, yesterday, I spoke to uh, one of my colleagues, namely Roberto Osorio, who heads up the research at Don Capital Management. And we had a really good conversation in which I could ask him about some of the topics we often debate here on the podcast. So you can hear a, a different perspective and perhaps a more scientific approach to trend following than the one that we normally give you. And in addition to this, I also wanted to ask Roberto about some of the other topics that I think is really important at the moment. So I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation coming up in a few minutes. But before we get to all of this, I think this week was a hugely important week in many respects. So let me summarize some of the things that I came across. Firstly, did you know that back in 1929, the stock market actually peaked on September 3rd before it went on to producing its big crash? And hopefully history won't repeat itself, but we did see something that looks like a top of some sort this week on almost to the day. And notably, the most recent surge in NASDAQ and the, in the S&P 500 to new highs was never confirmed by the Dow Jones. Okay, so on Friday, we may have found out why most of these gains this year have been concentrated in the tech stocks, at least the recent gains. You see, it turns out that SoftBank 
is the Nasdaq whale that has bought billions of dollars worth of U.S. equity derivatives in a move that has certainly fueled this parabolic rally in big tech stocks before the sharp pullback we saw Thursday and Friday this week. Now, according to some of the articles I read and that was published Friday, this Japanese conglomerate, also known for its involvement with WeWork, has been uh, buying up options in tech stocks during the last month in a huge amount. Some people report $4 billion. And this contributes to the largest trading volume in contracts linked to individual companies as had been seen in the last 10 years. The overall nominal value of calls traded on individual U.S. stocks has averaged $335 billion per day over the past week uh, or over the past two weeks, according to Goldman Sachs, which is more than triple the rolling uh, amount in 2017 to 2019. And this unusual activity also spilled over to the VIX, where the CBOE volatility index, which is, of course, a measure of expected stock market volatility, made its closing low, which was around 21.35 on August 17th. And since then, it has continued to diverge relative to the Dow Jones and the recent highs we've seen there. Now, usually the VIX trends and reverses with the Dow But when the VIX fails to confirm the new Dow high, as it did leading up to the February 12th top, it often signals that the rally may have come to an end. Now, this options buying by SoftBank comes alongside another $10 that they bought in public stocks, uh, according to filings from the SEC. Last month, SoftBank has bought stakes of nearly $2 in Amazon, Alphabet or Google as we know it, Microsoft and Tesla, uh, and these investments have been partially funded by cash or from its $41 billion asset sale program that was triggered by the collapse in its share price during the COVID-19 market turmoil back in the first quarter. Now, often once a trade like this is announced to the world, there's uh, little chance it'll keep working as well as it has done. But of course, we still have Dave Portnoy's army of retail investors who may still be buying some stocks. We will only know as time passes, of course. What is also very interesting about this week is that the sell-offs in stocks on Thursday and Friday were accompanied by a uh, sell-off in risk-off assets like gold, US bonds, and even Bitcoin. So... Investors who allocate according to the classical 60-40 portfolio did not see any benefit from the 40 part of their portfolio. Now, I've talked about this risk in a few other episodes before uh, this year. And once again, we see this play out. And this leads me to another interesting piece of news I came across this week, namely that the world's largest hedge fund and pioneer within the risk parity approach, Bridgewater Associates, They came out over the summer with an article saying, and I quote, it's pretty obvious that within interest rates near zero and being held stable by central banks, bonds can provide neither returns nor risk reduction. Of course, I completely agree with this view, and this is precisely why investors need to rethink how they build portfolios. In fact, Bridgewater goes on to estimate, and again, I quote, that if we were to see real yields return to long-term average, a little over 2%, 
and a moderate raise, rise in inflation to, say, 4%, that would produce a minus 30% return over three years for U.S. nominal bond cumulative returns. So, wow, I mean, I wonder how many portfolios are prepared for this kind of potential loss in their bond side of the uh, allocation. And remember, it may be 40% of a classical U.S. bond portfolio, but over here in Europe, it's usually a lot more that is allocated to bonds. So that is really going to hurt if that happens. Unless, of course, you're willing to embrace a new investment approach and include things like trend following and volatility in your portfolio, investment strategies that have proven over and over again that they can provide solid returns when traditional markets struggle. In terms of performance, as you can imagine, uh, when lots of markets change direction like this week, it will cost some money for trend followers like us, and it did, but not too bad. And I think that if this is only the beginning of something much bigger, I think trend followers may be a bit quicker to get their positions lined up for what could be a bumpy ride as we head into the U.S. election in a couple of months. Okay, with that said, let me jump into the conversation with Roberto Osorio of Don Capital Management. Roberto, it's great to have you on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking some time out to uh, dig into the weeds of trend following. It's certainly been a few years since you were on the show with uh, Alex Grazerman and Katie Kaminsky. Quite a fun conversation that you, the audience, can find in the back catalog of episodes. And I also really look forward to our conversation today because, one, we will be able to hear kind of your perspective on some of the questions we get asked quite a lot by our audience, which, by the way, can sometimes end up in some friendly but heated debates between Moritz and Jerry and, and myself, as we don't always agree, which is, which is great. But also, there is a few newer topics that I want to pick your brain about today and that I think the audience will really enjoy. But, of course, for full disclosure, you and I are colleagues at Dunn Capital. In case our listeners were wondering why we probably are going to reference back our experience to trend following from a Dunn perspective during our conversation. But first off, how are you doing? What's the situation like in South Florida and, and when it comes to corona and all things... COVID. First of all, nice to be here back in the podcast sure. again. Niels. Yeah, Florida is slowly getting back to normal. Uh, some of the business are still closed down and people working from home. Others are carefully getting back to work, like restaurants are open and with social distancing. Most customers prefer to eat outside still. So in our office, we have some people work from home, some come to the office and we try to respect social distancing and be careful. Yeah, of course. I actually heard a podcast this morning on my uh, walk with our dog that um, I think it was James Altucher that had written an article in one of the big US papers about New York being quote unquote dead or, or is never going to come back to where it used to be which also were this thing about, I think New York has come out and said, you're not going to have indoor dining. You're not allowed to have indoor dining for the mm -hmm. next six months, which is, I mean, from a European perspective, um, that sounds pretty harsh and restrictive. Yeah, here we have indoor dining, but uh, the tables are set with some distance yeah. apart. 
which makes a lot of sense. Sure. No, absolutely. Okay, cool. Now let's kick off with something that we have discussed quite a lot on the podcast, and that is how diversified should you be the optimal number of markets. And I want to give you a bit of context. On one side, you have people who believe that you should keep adding markets that are not perfectly correlated. And on the other side, where I'm probably more leaning, I would argue that you kind of have to stop at some point because you end up with having to decrease the risk allocation to each market so much if you trade like 150, 200 markets in order not to go overboard on, on kind of the overall risks that you are taking. So let me hear what your thoughts are on, on this particular topic. Where, where you, which side do you lean on? I think it's most important to have sector diversification, the market diversification, because within sectors you find usually high correlations between markets, except in agriculturals, where some of the different types of agricultures, like soft versus grains, can have low correlations. You know, uh, of course, all this soy meal, soybeans, soy uh, oil are all highly correlated, but the correlation between, let's say, soy and sugar is pretty low. So otherwise, you know, uh, for all sectors, if you take, for instance, stocks and bonds, all the markets are highly correlated. So adding additional stock indices or bond futures or even short-term interest futures, if you already have a good allocation to those sectors, doesn't add much diversification. This is one uh, issue. The other issue is that even if the markets were completely uncorrelated, the marginal improvement that you get in your portfolio by adding another market decreases with the number of markets. In other words, if you go from 10 to 20, you get some improvement. But from that point, you need to go to 40 to have a comparable improvement. And then you need to go to 80 to have another comparable improvement. So there is decreasing marginal improvement as you increase the number of markets. So in our case, we're trading now 53, 54 markets, including the VIX. That's a pretty adequate number. We're looking at possibly increasing this number by five or 10, just to have few more opportunities in terms of capacity, which is another aspect of the problem, of course. As you increase the number of markets, your capacity will increase, but it has the same, let's say, curse to the fact that uh, the greater the number of markets you already have in your portfolio, the increase in capacity by adding additional markets is going to have a lower and lower importance. And this is aggravated by the fact that you are already Probably, most CTAs already probably tend to uh, trade the most liquid markets. So the markets that they would be adding would have lower and lower liquidity. So there is like an optimal number that I would say between 50 and 70. And after that, really, it's very marginal yeah. improvement and doesn't make material 
sense in the sense in the sense of improving both your correlations and your liquidity yeah yeah and and, and kind of in my own mind as well the way i think about it is also that if you keep adding markets beyond a certain point i get the correlation argument i completely agree with that but also you know some people would turn it around and say yeah but you know you can have this weird thing occur i mean from time to time you have one of the energies that just goes crazy right and uh, you could still have this odd market event that causes one or two futures contracts to just take off right so so you want to play the probability of being in that trade like palladium has done this year i think and mm -hmm. i think rough rice did as well i'll come back to these two markets actually later on with another question but so i get that my argument as well however the way i think about it at least is yeah i mean it's great to have all these potential trends you can get into and theoretically the more markets you trade the more the higher pr the probability you're going to catch one of them but on the other hand if you keep adding markets you have to in my opinion you have to decrease the risk you take per market certainly if you do a more let's call it classical or simple risk management structure where you just take a certain amount of risk you keep that risk per market it's unrelated to the other parts of the portfolio etc and so my my issue is that if if you do want to somehow control the overall level of risk you end up having very small risks in each market so even if it does take off the pnl contribution is low and then comes the third argument and that is what I tend to see from the outside, at least, is that when trend followers do the best, it's actually when markets become correlated, right? It's actually when a lot of things move at the same time. And so the idea of, of diversification kind of, well, yeah, it's nice maybe to control the downside, but when you really want to make money, you kind of, you end up with some level of conviction in the portfolio because a lot of things are moving at the same time. Right. I agree. In this example of palladium, makes a good point because you do increase your exposure to what we could call idiosyncratic events on each market. On the other hand, the more markets you have, the less your exposure to a particular market where you could potentially benefit from idiosyncratic events is going to go down. So also there is the liquidity problem mm -hmm. again. Yeah. And if you want to have, for instance, uh, ethanol futures in your portfolio, yeah, you could benefit from particular events that happen in that market, but you, you're going to have a very low exposure because that market is not very liquid, as an example. Yeah, no, no, completely agree. You know, another topic that has certainly prompted some heated reactions uh, whenever it comes up is volatility targeting. And I think it's fair to say that that Jerry and Moritz are very much against it, for sure. Mm. And from my point of view, I also don't see really any benefit in volatility targeting, meaning, and the way I dis define that is trying to keep your portfolio at a more or less constant level of volatility at all times. But I am, on the other hand, a great believer in what I would rather call kind of dynamic risk control, where you do have to manage your position size whilst you're in a trend as opposed to keeping it constant until you get out of the trade. How do you see these different approaches when it comes to doing trend following? Well, we do follow the ladder 
approach that you mentioned, we have a dynamic volatility target where we try to read the market environment based, for instance, in the magnitude of correlations between markets and see what which environment is most beneficial to trend following. This has proved, this is a difficult task, but it has proved successful in the long range in our approach. However, even the traditional volatility target, I would contend it is, it is beneficial as opposed to let, let's say, your uh, gains or loss just to build up and just have trading rules based on price change. The reason for that is that if there is one predictable thing in finance and in financial mathematics is volatility. The correlation between price change in successive days is practically zero. We really need to go to some longer range horizon to try to benefit from that correlation. And that's what happens with momentum or trend following strategies. We look at longer horizons. We're not going to we're not going to be betting on the market going on a given market going up today because it went up yesterday. But what we can say is that high price changes tend to be followed by high price changes and low price changes tend to be followed by low price changes. This is very easy to measure. You can do in any market. And if it's basically the correlation between the absolute value of price changes. It's going to be very strongly statistically significant in any market you, you pick. In other words, there is volatility clustering. That's the traditional phrase that's used in mathematical finance. Given that fact, when you have a portfolio and you see that several markets in your portfolio have much higher volatility than usual, you know that your risk is increasing. And unless you started at a very low level of risk, that could be dangerous, potentially dangerous. It's true that you're going to do better if you don't have volatility target in many years because you're just going to, build, to be building up in trend following. In part to focus on this particular type of strategy that we mostly use in our portfolios. But this has the potential of, in bad years, taking you down to very dangerous levels. I'll just say, if you start to target your portfolio, given uh, standard simulations to a level of 20% a year, and volatility suddenly triples, in all your markets, which is, uh, you know, granted an unlikely scenario, but just to use an extreme example, then now you your volatility targeted, which is not a target theoretically, but in practice, you are you have a portfolio that is exposed to a volatility of sixty percent, and it's very easy to lose in a year twice. You it's not very easy, but it happens that you lose twice. So you, you, you have this danger of losing all of your AUM in one year. 
if you don't have a volunteer. So, so, so let me, let me, I, I wouldn't say push back on that a little bit, but let me make it a little bit more nuanced, right? Because I, I do know some of the arguments that people would say, well, hang on. Because if you're taking, say, 25 basis points risk on a position, right? And so that's, yes, your risk. And you take that along, uh, you know, the uh, 20, 30, 50 markets, whatever you, you trade. And then you have this stop and you're going to move your stop up if the volatility and momentum goes up with the position, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just say for to follow your argument that suddenly volatility generally increases. I think the people who have a stop at all times would say, well, hang on, my risk doesn't increase because I still have my stop. Do, do, do you know what I mean? It's a slightly, yes. you know, so I wonder whether what you're describing has to do with the way you do your risk management or there is an influence there. And also I would just say maybe in the beginning when you say that we, to some extent, use volatility targeting, I think more of it as risk targeting because we we know our volatility will change over time. It's certainly not constant, but it's the risk that we really want to target, I guess. Right. I understand this argument in trend following traditional older models will have stop losses that kind of building the model usually become actually reversing positions. Mm -hmm. There is also the danger that the market will zigzag and you keep reversing your positions, which becomes correct more of a danger if you only use the sign of your primary signal to determine your positions instead of the magnitude. Then you can keep going long and short and losing money both ways. Without a volatility target, if you have, in, if you're in a condition of where you don't have directional volatility, but you have what I would call zigzagging volatility, this increases your risk. In all types of portfolios, I think it makes sense to have the volatilities of the market. Right, but so to count and yeah, yeah. No, I just want to add one more thing because I know what the arguments are going to come back as soon as. As soon as I have Moritz and Jerry back on on the show, and the argument's going to be, say, yeah, sure, but even if there was high volatility and we were zigzagging, each time we take a new position, are that position's going to get smaller because we 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 volatility adjust our positions when we get in. So the risk we're taking are also kind of you know taking into account a higher level of volatility as we get stopped in and out. And of course, all systems have the the whipsaw risk. So I'm just trying to fully understand why, All right. you know, the, the pros and the cons of these different ways of doing things. Because I think the argument deep down is that once you start introducing volatility targeting, and, and again, I, the way I interpret it is, because I think that's how some managers did it, certainly in the old days, is to say, we want to always try and have 15% annualized volatility, right? That's, so we adjust, you know, all the time. So it introduces a lot of trades that are quote unquote, not really system trades they are risk management mm-hmm. trades and i think that's where that's where some of my uh, good friends in the industry has the, the that's the challenge they have in 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 embracing that because they don't see them as system trades they see them as noise yeah i understand that you're saying that volatility is always already present in the model maybe not in the, at the level, what you call volatility target is right. at the level of the portfolio volatility. But each market volatility is taken into account in setting the position. So there are two levels of considerations of volatility in your portfolio. 
basically what you're saying is, should we take into account the correlations between mm-hmm. the markets, which will have set together with the original volatilities, set the market, the, I'm sorry, the portfolio volatility. Mm. And some of your guests in this podcast will defend that you don't need to take into account the correlations. You right. can stop at the level of the market volatility. Well, I guess in some sense that depends on what kind of model you have. If it's a breakout model that has well-defined stop loss or if it's a continuous model. My personal experience is that without volatility target, you have drawdowns that are much worse. And I have done, I have verified this in several simulations and also our history where originally, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, done didn't have a volatility target shows that. The drawdowns are much worse if you don't take into account the market correlations and set portfolio volatilities. Mm. However, it's also true that you can make more money. You can, you both make and lose more money. So I guess in some sense, it depends on your risk aversion or your risk appetite. And I'm just defending the position that uh, it's more prudent to have a portfolio volatility target. And I I agree with that. Again, uh, although I would say that our volatility on our side is certainly not static or we're not really trying to keep it at a certain level, but we are certainly managing the risk. And that's really what we're concerned about, not taking too much risk and taking, as you said, all things into account, both volatility and correlation. And that makes a lot of sense. And I also agree with you that I think it is true that uh, if you put less restrictions on, you probably could make more money in the long run. But I also think you do run a, a higher risk at some level to lose or have bigger drawdowns along the way. So that's fair. And, and you know, usually risk and reward goes hand in hand. And we know that clients, of course, are usually more concerned about losses than they are about gains, so to speak. So Exactly. There is, is a symmetry human feelings. We feel worse about losses than we feel good about comparable gains. Yeah. Right. And now we get into the whole field of uh, behavioral economics and psychology. Oh, yes, indeed. Absolutely. And by the way, people want to hear more about that. They should go back and listen to Roberto's first uh, episode with Katie Kaminsky and Alex uh, Grazeman, because we did actually get into the whole behavioral side on that console. So we won't, we're not going to repeat that today. Anyways, now another question that really attracts a lot of attention from our listeners and uh, something I'm sure you've been asked uh, before, and that is, how do you know if a model has stopped working? I think we we all know that the people question trend following quite often as a concept, but let's just let make it even more down to kind of model-specific levels. I mean, how do you think about this challenge of, of identifying if a model has stopped working? And I, frankly, I don't know if it's more relevant for shorter-term models because there, I do agree there is model decay uh, to a much larger extent than, than longer-term trend mm-hmm. following. But, but still, I'm sure you've thought about this um, in your many, many years of, of doing this. Yeah, the long-term verification of uh, validity of momentum strategies is present in the financial literature in many, many papers now, including one by uh, my previous colleagues in your podcast. 
Griezmann and Kaminsky. There is also there are also papers from the CFM group in Paris and other groups, and this goes back centuries of data now. So we have a history of trend following working for many, many centuries, going back to the Middle Ages, actually, where there is some uh, historical data for price of agriculture. Of course, there were no futures then, but for the spot market, with the onset of futures, we now have a new source of trend following because futures price can be decomposed into spot price and what we could call the time value of futures, meaning how time, which is similar to this concept that you have in options, how the price changes as time evolves and you become closer to expiration. Of course, in options, the problem uh, is mainly the volatility, the main variable that defines the time value of an option is volatility. In futures, is more the conversions of the futures price to the spot price. So these two factors are not going to go away. It's There will be periods, we can have three, five years, where it doesn't work as well as it did in the past, or sometimes it even stops working. I think it's human nature that this herd behavior is going to continue just because news disseminate gradually, even today, even in the internet age where information seems to be almost instantaneous, the change in behavior between uh, among investors is not instantaneous. There are, and you see this also in the internet, there are leaders and followers, there are influencers and followers. So I don't see a reason why this is going to go away. Of course, your question was more generic than that. How do you know that a model stopped working? In, the, in those generic terms, it's very hard to define. I think most managers will just uh, know that they stopped working when they lose their investors, <laughs> when they lose all the clients because nobody believes anymore. But you, you have a history of models that where people invest, even if they lose money year after year, right? That's basically the main feature of so-called black swan strategies, where you're buying insurance against uh, catastrophic events. So you have to pay for that. As an insurance, you have to pay for it. And the result is that you lose money year after year after year, and you, until the volatility moves to a level where you start making money. So it's similar to buy out of the money options. And lots of people uh, earn their living by selling this type of strategy. Yeah. So it's a question that whose answer depends on yeah. the type of strategy and the belief that the investors have on the manager. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things to unpack in what you said. I mean, I completely agree with you that things doesn't work all the time and you can have periods of time where where certainly in trend following where the environment is just not very conducive for, for what we do. And of course, you could say, well, if clients leave and you have no one left, then maybe the model doesn't work. However, I would caution about that as a an indicator because often we unfortunately see people ending up doing kind of trend following on trend following, meaning they sell the low and they buy the high. So they never really get the benefit of, of what we do. 
And I also agree that it's very hard with kind of these longer term trend following models to really say, well, they have stopped working. However, I do think maybe it's fair that in more in the shorter term space that it's easier to identify if you lose your edge using a certain model. And also because technology has certainly been part of eliminating some of those edges over time. But it is, I mean, it's a hard question. I want to shift gear on you a little bit and talk about something different, maybe not something that we discuss so much, but I think it's quite relevant when it comes to this year of 2020, which is turning out to be a bit of a test for a lot of different investment strategies and beliefs. And one of the things that I think is really important to understand well when it comes to understanding trend following is how different levels of speed of a model can yield very different outcomes. And speed is often directly related to what we call the look back period. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about your experience when it comes to what kind of speeds tend to do well in trend following, kind of generally speaking. And then after that, perhaps we can talk about different ways of trying to find out what the right speed of your model should be. So how do you, what are your thoughts on this particular topic? I guess this topic showed up especially given what happened this year, where you see in the stock market a rapid, or oh, a crash actually, starting in February. And then after it hit the bottom in April, it recovered not with the same speed, but with what seems looking back, a very stable rate of recovery until it seems to be at original levels or close to it this point. So typically, it's not a secret that, again, there's, uh, there are hundreds of papers, if not thousands at this point, in the literature about how different assets show momentum behavior in the sense that looking back several months to a year, the price change during that period seems to be a predictor of what will happen in the next, typically one month in lots of papers. The efficacy of shorter periods, let's say weeks, is not as clear. Now, some people will defend that you should include those short periods because they are not strongly correlated with the long periods. Of course, they're part of the long period, so they will be correlated, but they, were, they won't be strongly correlated. You diversify your model and then you respond faster when this type of event of these two particular reversals, what we would call regime changes that happened this year, happen. So there are those two views. And I think what we're looking so far is for sure, we have two new data points that we should look at. This hasn't happened in the last 30 or 40 years of history that we typically use in our simulations. This is a new event. Is it going to be repeated in the future? Maybe. Again, with the higher speed of dissemination of information, it's well possible that there will be 
some new event that will make the market either crash or recover quickly. And it's, in my opinion, we should take a good look at that and be ready to implement this. And we're doing, we're making progress here in our research group to introduce this type of market reversal, sudden market reversal, that is almost unheard of this year. In the sense that, for instance, in February, the market came down from new highs to a very, very, very suddenly losing high percentage, you know, 20% or more in one week or two. So you have to go back 80, 90 years to see similar events. But it is possible to introduce this kind of reaction in the model, or rather I should put this as a question, is it possible to introduce this kind of event, this kind of quick response to events in the model without degrading, <laughs> without degrading your performance in relatively stable periods like the previous 10 years after the financial crisis? And I think there is some light at the end of the tunnel to actually do this kind of uh, incorporation of a quick reaction. The caveat there is we have to be very careful not to have your model change quickly just because something new happened. But here we have not one, but two events, two regime change, two sudden regime change events. And this gives a little more weight to the argument that a model should react to that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And also, of course, you know, when, when we think about critics of trend following and, you know, there's always a choir in the background saying trend following is dead, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they certainly seem to have latched on to these two events from February 2018 and from March, February 2020 as signs of markets having these quick sell-offs often from new all-time highs. And frankly, I should say that when we talk about these things, we always talk about it being equity-type crisis because, of course, that's what most people pay attention to. But And then with these kind of V-shaped recoveries, and, and they kind of use that as an argument saying, well, markets have changed, conditions have changed, and this is why trend following won't do as well as it used to do. And, and, and I, you know, I have to credit you, of course, because some of the things that we've done in the last 10 or so years in terms of improving the, the strategy, which is not something, I mean, we don't make a lot of changes in the model at the, despite doing a, a, a lot of research, but, but the returns have been incredibly consistent over different timeframes. And that is, of course, a, a testament to, to you and your, your team. But it is a challenge, and I, and I know you're working on, on whether further changes needs to be done to adapt to this. But also the other thing that we kind of touched upon a little bit earlier today, which is another market situation that you do see, I don't know whether you see more of it, but you certainly do see it from time to time. And that's when you have these kind of parabolic moves like in Pelagium and rough rice mm -hmm. and where the market doesn't go sideways at all and then it just crashes straight after that event, which is another really difficult scenario to deal with, I guess, as a medium to long-term trend follower. Yeah, it does look at first that you have to be extra careful 
when a market is at new high, the possibility of crashes there. Yeah. It's not clear if the possibility of medium-sized drawdowns is higher or lower, but it does seem that the possibility of rare crashes or crashes that used to be rare in the past becomes higher. Yeah. And I was just going to say, speaking of crashes, you and I are talking at an interesting point in time because one, the market this week certainly has had some uh, challenges in the last couple of days of the week when we think about equities. But also, if I'm not mistaken, I actually think that the crash back in 1929 started on September 4th which is kind of ironic when we sit here uh, looking at what's happening in the markets. Uh, you know, is this the beginning of something big? But anyway, let's... We try not to have calendar effects in our models. <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. So I also want to talk to you a little bit about something that, another thing that that uh, I think is, is interesting, and that is, and again, I, I don't know how well understood this is, but it's kind of, to me, the question about how you do trend following. I think that... Some people believe that trend following is more or less the same thing. So you probably just need one trend follower and you'll be fine. But what I mean by how you do trend following, the way I would try and explain it is you have on one side, perhaps the classical simpler stop and reverse type models. And then on the other side, you have maybe the more complex models with a few more bells and and whistles. And this year... In fact, we've seen that certainly in March, the simpler models, just stop and reverse, nothing nothing else, really did well. And then maybe over the summer, in particular in August, we've kind of seen the opposite. And so, uh, of course, we know that short-term performance between different approaches can vary a lot. We, we know that. But I just want you to, to talk a little bit about the balance between simple versus complex. But also, I want to add one more layer to that question and that is when i think about complex i don't mean complex necessarily in oh we're just going to make it more fancy actually mm-hmm. it's more the the um the attempt to make it more robust so it's kind of robustness that i'm trying to uh, to get you to talk a little bit about because also when when it when when you try and introduce more things to make things quote unquote more robust you also have the the risk of overfitting something to history because on one side we're using historical data to create our models on the other hand we don't want to rely on history repeating itself exactly to make money so there's a lot of few bits and bobs in that question so feel free to talk about it the way you feel right starting at the level of simple models as you mentioned there are two types of simple models you can have the traditional typically older in conceptualization models that use breakout thresholds to either take a position or get out of the position. And you have models that use, on the other hand, a continuous variable, trying to measure the momentum over a given look back period and use that measure as your signal Typically, that measure will be converted into range between minus one for an extreme short position and plus one for an extreme long position, but could take any value between these two, including zero when you go flat. So it looks like the traditional breakout models respond faster to this kind of event that we had this year 
just because when you have a sudden change in volatility, the breakout levels naturally will be hit more easily. And then this allows the model to revert the position more quickly. While if you're just looking, for instance, at a continuous measure of momentum or trend following over several months, it may not react so quickly. So we do actually use both types of simple models or let's say primary signals in our strategy with a bit more weight to the continuous type because it has tended to perform better in the long history. It has performed better in the long history. And that's because it allows for a more nuanced measure of momentum instead of just being long, short, or flat. So the other aspect of your question is the complexity of the model, or what some people call complication. We try not to complicate our model, which would mean to add additional layers that are just a result of data mining and not careful deliberation. We had some level of complexity that seems to be very robust in long-range simulations, and those include using filters to smooth out the signals and using an exit strategy, which also has helped. This is used at the level of the continuous model because... Like I mentioned, the, the breakout models have already this exit strategy built in, given the thresholds of for reversal or, or flattening a position. So in the continuous model, uh, some what we call an exit tactic here at Dunn, where we measure the robustness of the signal, the variation of the signal, and we make it come down faster than the original signal would, given a certain level of degradation of the signal. This helps a lot. This is somewhat uh, correlated with what we talked before about faster response in the event of uh, sudden changes of regime. So if you have in the model, what is now in our research projects to incorporate this faster response from extrema meaning from high from new highs or new lows over a certain time period you also this is a layer of complexity that might also be very helpful in decreasing your risk sure sure now as we wrap up i had one more question that i wanted to get your thoughts about and i think that a lot of investors you know, when they look at a manager there and maybe even managers uh, in their in their own marketing are kind of focusing on how different are we or if it's an investor looking at a manager, you know, the question is how different are you really? But to me, the better question is how are you different? Hmm. So if I was going to ask you this when it comes to Don Capital and how we do trend following as, as a firm that has done this for more than 45 years, what springs to mind in, in how we are different, if at all? Well, in my experience, I'm a physicist originally. So I come from scientific 
background and I look at financial data just like I looked at data in natural sciences, something that you have to analyze and be convinced that it's telling you a story, that it's giving you a narrative for a good investment strategy in this case. Everything has to be backed up by data. You know, hunches are easy to come up with, but usually very hard to verify. Which brings us back to our previous podcast where we talked about behavior economics. Without getting too deep into that again, it's obvious that that's one pitfall that we want to avoid, which is having human emotions interfere with the judgment. It's very hard. We cannot get rid of our own emotions. So this has to be, uh, there has to be a constant feedback and interaction. And we have to have a group of people, you have to have a team that is aware of that, where everybody is questioning everybody. So that whenever an idea come up, the natural tendency of people when they have ideas is to try to confirm their initial hypothesis. That's the so-called confirmation bias. So it's very useful to have an opposing viewpoint that you have to confront. And if you're not able to come up with an opposing viewpoint inside your mind because of your psychology, it's very useful to have people in the teams that will push you back on whatever new ideas you have. We were talking about complexity, for instance, and I'm a strong believer in Occam's razor. If you have two different explanations for for the same phenomenon or for the same set of phenomena, the best explanation is usually the simplest one. So we should not try to make our models complex just to fit the data. Whatever works best in sample usually performs badly out of sample. So this is a topic that it became very hard, very hot in the era of machine learning where people now are very aware of having initial samples and then having a verification sample and a testing sample. So you have a fitting verification and testing period. So we have a similar strategy. We have been adopting this for at least a decade now where our models have to be fitted, let's use the term, in a given period to come with the best parameters, then verified in a second period and finally tested in a period. And we do this, this final test, we do this live using proprietary account for some period before the model is propagated into uh, investors' accounts. So we are very careful in this type of behavior. So I'm not sure how other companies, how, how our competitors work in detail. I don't have this type of experience of having worked in any of our competitors. My previous experience in finance was in an equities fund in California. So, But this type of approach, which is evidence-based and inspired by science, is what we use here. Yeah. No, and actually, it's, a, it's an interesting point to kind of end our conversation today. And that is the fact that you didn't come from a CTA background back when you joined Don. And I think sometimes you have to think outside the box, or I think actually you do have to think outside the box in order to make 
big steps forward when it comes to uh, the topic of trend following. Uh, you know, if, if we all read the same books, if we all learn to do it the same way, we probably won't make huge amount of progress. So uh, I appreciate that. On that note, Roberto, let me slowly start to wrap up this week's conversation. But as usual, before I do that, uh, let's see how the industry is faring in September and so far this year. Of course, the performance numbers is as usual as of Thursday evening. I think Friday was also a down day for most uh, CTAs. But uh, as of Thursday, at least, the Beta 50 index was pretty much flat for uh, the month of September and pretty much flat for the year 2020 so far. The SOCGEN CTA index was down 12 basis points for the month and down 1.58% for the year. The SOCGEN trend index was down 17 basis points in September so far, still up 0.51% for the year. The SOCGEN short-term trading index, interestingly enough, was down 45 basis points, but up 2.68% for the year. I also found another index which we can include now, which is the SOCGEN Multi-Alternative Risk Premier Index. That's down 0.04% for September, but it's down 13.42% for the year. And then in the traditional world, the MSCI World Index is, and this is as of last night, Friday, down 2.28% for September, up one74 for the year. And the World Government Bond Index so far is up 0.25% in September. Now, with that, before I uh, leave you, I just want to say that we don't take your attention for granted. And, and the journey that we've been on is solely because that you have gifted us your time and attention. So we have much love and appreciation to everyone out there who took a chance on the show back when it began and who have become an important part of this audience. It means so much to us and it is your energy, enthusiasm and engagement with what we do that keeps us going. On that note, I'm going to wrap up this week's conversation. I hope that you all have enjoyed listening to my conversation with Roberto. Also make sure to check out our latest Global Macro episode with Lynn Alden. That was a great one. Then we published that very recently and also, there's going to be a new Global Macro episode out this week with Professor Steve Keen. That is also something you don't want to miss. Make sure, of course, that your questions keep coming. You can email them to info at toptradersonplot.com and we will do our best to answer them as soon as we can. And also, you can follow us on Twitter and other social media platforms. From me, Niels Kastelarsen, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.